please turn in your New Testaments now to Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 as we continue in this study of the life of faith, this summer thing we're doing together. What does it mean to live by faith? Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, and this is God's very word, the word of the Creator, the word of the one who made everything, sustains, and redeems. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in fact in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which he figuratively did, speaking, did receive him back. There was a man who was on a business trip in Arizona, and he had a little time, so he made a side trip up to the Grand Canyon. I actually went to the Grand Canyon with a daughter in spring break, so this is really fresh in my mind and just how beautiful and deep uh, the Grand Canyon is. But anyway, he was stopping at the overlooks like you do, and it's just amazing and He just couldn't get enough of it, and the sun was about to go down, and he kind of wanted to go to a little bit more remote overlook, and he drove way back, and he was the only one there, and there was a guardrail that kept you from going any further, and he he walked over the guardrail because he he wanted to get a picture of just kind of what the sheer magnitude of the drop looked like, so he eased over to the the edge of the canyon, and he had his camera out and right as he was about to take the picture underneath his feet the ground gave way and he was in free fall and there happened to be one bush sticking out from the canyon and he grabbed it and he was hanging about 500 feet on the one bush he didn't know what to do and he shouted out loud echoing through the canyon God if you are there save me And a voice came from heaven. I am here. Let go of the bush and I will save you. And he thought for a moment. He yelled out, echoing through the the canyon again. Is there anyone else out there? (laughs) Now look, I know that's a well-worn story. I love it. I love to tell it. Because I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And and Abraham certainly was tempted after God told him to sacrifice his only son. Is there anyone else out there? Is there there anyone else that would like to make a recommendation? So I'd like to ask the question this morning, what happens when what God is commanding you to do is very different? than what you would want to do? What happens when God's Word is calling to you to do something very different than you comfortably would want to do? Now, this story, the, the third by faith story of Abraham in, in Hebrews 11, and the final one, is found in Genesis 22. And I just read Genesis 22, 1, God says to Abraham, uh, it says that God came to test Abraham's faith. You want me to do what? You want, to ta- you want me to take my son 
to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as in a burnt offering? And so I'd like to look at faith just from two angles this morning. The first is, is that faith is about a death. If it's real faith, it's about a death. And the second is, faith is about a resurrection. Faith is about a death, and faith is about a resurrection. So I want to talk about this idea, obviously flowing right out of that command of God to Abraham, that faith is about a death. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, this whole thing and the magnitude of it uh, not only has to do with the fact that that Abraham is commanded to, to offer up his son, but it has to do with this word, his, the, your only son, the one that you love. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and sacrifice him. And so I, I go to Genesis 22.1. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, I, here I am. He wish he hadn't said that. Here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you about it. Now, you know, technically this isn't Abraham's only son. There's another son. His name is Ishmael. He is the son uh, of the parents being Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's wife's servant. But God makes it very clear that this son, Ishmael, is not the promised son. And, and Ishmael, I think, I should have looked it up, is probably around 12, 12 years old or so when um, Isaac is born, fulfilling the prophecy, the promised son arrives. Now, the word translated here, your only son, can be translated your unique son. You see, it's a little different from just the, like the, uh, the numeric quality of the son. Your unique son, your special son. This is the special one. Abraham, take the special one. The unique one. The son of the promise. And sacrifice him on a mountain that I'll show you in the region of Moriah. Now, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him out of where he was from. It was called Ur of the Chaldees. God called him out when he was 75 years old, promised a son, promised land, headed toward what would be the promised land, uh, which is Canaan. Abraham was 99 years old when Isaac was born. That's a long time to wait for a son that's been promised. That's 24 years just from the promise to the birth of Isaac. So we could say, born to a 99-year-old father, this is a unique son. This is a a very special son. And and so we, we ask the question, why did God test Abraham like this? We know what the test is. The, the test has to do with his child. A lot of a lot of scholars think that it could be that Abraham, Abraham, um, that Isaac had become too too important to Abraham, too ultimate, too special, too only in his life. 
You know, it's interesting in the Bible, the, the orders, the order of our loves goes like this. There is, number one, God, number one, and then everybody else. That's the order. There's God, and then there's everybody else. And see, the problem is, is when something that's supposed to be in the everybody or everything else category moves up into the God category. And the Bible even has a designation, changes the name of something when this happens. For instance, it, it might start out as legal tender. It might start out as money. And when it becomes too important and more important than God, it's, it's not called money anymore by God. It's called an idol. Uh, it might be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. But you know, there comes a point when it's not called a girlfriend or a boyfriend anymore. It's called an idol. It, you call it a job. God calls it an idol. You call it SEC football. God calls it an idol. <laughs> you know, and I could go on and on about this because we struggle with idols. We struggle with this order of loves and, and an idol is, is just simply something we hold on to in our hearts with deeper affection than God himself. But you know what? What is so interesting about idols is that they do start out as perfectly good things, like a child. You know, a gift from the Lord. You know, a heritage from the Lord. A child. This is Abraham's challenge in Genesis 22. This is Abraham's challenge that we read about in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. How relevant is the Bible? What do you know? One of the major idols that we struggle with and, and as modern Americans is making an idol out of our children. And um, we are driven by this. Everything becomes about our kids. Everything, just nothing else. Everything face to black but my kids. And you know, when, when it is in its more radical form, y'all, it gets crazy. It gets crazy. Because precious has to have the best. Now, precious could be a boy or a girl, okay? Not just a girl. Precious. Precious has to have the precious has to make the team lest we die. Precious has to be spoiled because precious only has one childhood to live. And we would want precious to miss her or his childhood. Precious has to be spoiled rotten. Precious has to be coddled. Precious has to be protected more than. Precious should be protected. Y'all have heard of the term helicopter parents? If you hadn't heard about this, these are parents that hover over their children and interject them themselves into their children's lives in a meddling kind of way to make sure precious is always okay. Well, it's about two or three months ago, and I've been waiting to put this in a sermon. <laughs> it's about two or three months ago, I heard two more designations for insanely over-the-top parents. So we've got helicopter parents. That's the one we've all heard about. But now we have bulldozer parents and drone parents. 
Let me explain these. You know, a helicopter parent's just one that kind of hovers and it's like monitoring the child and kind of swoops in and meets. It's kind of a nurturing thing that can get a little out of hand. A bulldozer parent's very different. A bulldozer parent simply pulls the lever and plows the way in front of their child so their child never has to risk failure. Because bulldozer parents has knocked everything down in the child's path. Drone parents, what are they? Well, drone parents kind of sit up in the sky, kind of like a helicopter, but, but a drone, and they rain down hellfire missiles on anyone that appears to not be all in for precious. I remember Sarah Palin in another election cycle that I thought was crazy then. I, <laughs> I remember Sarah Palin, uh, who was a hockey mom. You know, we would say soccer mom, or you put, you know, whatever mom you are, you know, whatever your thing is, you're a blank mom. Uh, but she was a hockey mom, and, and she asked this famous question on the trail. She said, "What is the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull?" And the answer was lipstick, <laughs> meaning there's no functional difference between a drone parent, a hockey mom, and a pit bull. And uh, look, we get this because nothing is more, impre- more important than precious. Not even God. Not even close. And you need to try that on, and I need to try that on, parents. Not even God. Not even close. Oh yeah, that's us. And honestly, it is no way to live. It's when parenting becomes idolatry. If you live to have your identity wrapped up in the continual success of your child, if you live by that sword, you will die by that sword all the time. And be driven just that much harder to overcome and to make your child a winner... That is no way to have peace in your life as a parent or to pass along peace. In fact, that can hobble emotionally a child. Now, I want you to think about Abraham and Sarah with me for a minute. Abraham and Sarah went through not being able to have a child, which in my 30 years of being a pastor... That is definitely in the top five of all the hard things, the hardest things people struggle with. If you know somebody who struggles with that, let me tell you something. You need to be praying for them. You need to be compassionate with them. And you don't need to talk about it all the time. Abraham and Sarah struggled with this for five or six decades. And then they gave up. And then there was the promise. And then there was the miracle. And then there was Isaac when Abraham was 99 years old. He was so beautiful. He was so perfect. He was the unique. He was the special. He was the only. He was the one that they loved. Do you not think for a minute that Isaac was not the apple of Abraham and Sarah's eyes? Can you imagine the just ladled love and focus, focus, focus on Isaac in their life? How easily it must have been for Isaac to become the most passionate love in their lives. And we, we kind of understand that. 
That's a long time to wait for a child. Now for you, your ultimate might not be a child. It might be a career move. And you think, you know, you get up in the morning thinking about how in 10 years you're going to be here. And that's like your life. You know, it, it might be some zip code. Doggone it, one day I'm going to live in this zip code. And that's your life. It might be somebody that you're going to marry. Maybe we should put it this way, that you're, you're, you're only, you're special, you're unique, you're ultimate, the one you love. Maybe you're only is, is, you can understand it better in the terms of if only. If only I had that job. If only I could marry this person. If only I could do this. If only I had blank, my life would be complete. You fill in the blank and voila, there's your idol. This is so helpful. You see, faith in God, Abraham shows us, is dying to ourselves and killing an idol to be able to love God and put him in first place in our lives. And you know, that's what has to happen in our lives. At least, at least our, our, our out of sorts onlys have to be put back in their, their best location under God first. And y'all, when we love God first, we're able to love those same people better. When we love God first, we own stuff. It doesn't own us. When we love God first, we're able to sleep better and relax at night and let God be God and walk with God in faith rather than having to control the universe and, and all the next moves and all the things that we want to see happen for our lives. It's just exhausting. But this is... And, and you know, I'm going to tell you something. I had to kill one of those things this morning. I had to climb up Mount Moriah. This was kind of a good thing and a bad thing about being a preacher. Like you're stuck in Hebrews 11 and Genesis 22 all week. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit finally gets around to saying, uh, what about you, Joseph? Oh, i got to kill that. Oh, okay. But this goes deeper than just Abraham's love for his only son. This is about killing the promised son. This is about a structural thing that involves generations, not just how Abraham feels about his baby, his boy. Translated, this command doesn't make sense, God. And I'm not sure I want to do it. Our text, Hebrews 11:17. Listen to this. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who received the promise was in the very act of offering up his one and only, his only son. That son of whom it was said, through Isaac will all your offspring be named. You see, the whole chain, the whole history, the whole promise comes through the child. The promised one, the unique one. Through Isaac, it says, your offspring, verse 18... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God gives a son. God says there's going to, I mean, he promises a son. Going to be descendants as numerous as the stars. Going to give you a land. The son comes. And then one day God says, go kill the son. I mean, Abraham really might have been tempted to yell, is there anybody else out there? 
Is anybody else out there that has a different command than that? And you know, I think that um, that we are tempted to think sometimes that God needs a little help from us. You know, we got to help out God uh, because our logic is more sound than God's logic. And God doesn't really understand the situation on the ground, regardless of what His Word says, written a long time ago. So we're going we're gonna to help God out a little bit. And uh, maybe Abraham could say, you know, I don't know why God would, would say to kill anybody like this. And uh, I'm going to save God from God. And I'm going to protect the promised son in the face of a verbal command of God. Not just the word of God, a verbal command of God. I've never had one of those. Very easy to rationalize what we're going to do, irrespective of God's word. And after all, if it doesn't make sense to me, well, it must not make sense. I'm the oracle of the universe, aren't I? I'm the only one that really knows my life inside and out. If it doesn't make sense to me, why would I invite anybody else to give any perspective? It's my life, isn't it? Don't I make the decisions for my life? Maybe I can navigate my life better than God. This is the reason why Abraham is so amazing to me. I mean, in a situation exponentially more stretching than anything I will ever face in my life, anything you will ever face in your life, by faith he stuck with God's word when he didn't even understand it. He did not rationalize it. He did not reject it. Verse 22, uh, excuse me, Genesis 22, verse 3. The next thing we read after the command is this. I love this. Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey. He saddled up and rode out. Three days it took to get there. You know, this, this shows us that sometimes having faith in God and and choosing to trust God and choosing to follow through on God's word can be very costly. We all know this. Do you know that acting out in faith on God's word can cost you money? Because you're beginning to discover that's a shady business deal that you and your buddies are in. And God's word says not no shady. Integrity here. And you say, I'm out. They all make money. You don't. You stood on God's word. You could be in a romantic relationship, and you know clearly in the Bible that we are not supposed to give our bodies to anybody before we are married. And that person you're with says, If you know what? If you love me, we'll have premarital sex. And you say no, and you lost your boyfriend by saying no. You lost your girlfriend by saying no. You might. Be caused to lose a friendship because that friendship is not based on something that is good. Maybe it's based on gossip and you say, you know what? we got to change this or I'm out. And you're out. But you will not lose in the long run if you follow the word and command of this loving, merciful Good God. 
You will not lose. Believing and acting on God's Word is exactly what brings long-term strength and peace in a relationship with Him. You know, I'm 54. I never thought I'd say that years ago. You know, remember, y'all remember in the 60s, don't trust anybody over 30? It's like 30? Come on! I'm just old enough now to actually have trapped my friends and their lives. And I see in living technicolor what trusting God actually means in a life. And where people have loved God more than themselves, died to themselves, said no, walked with the Lord. And you know what? And I see... I know they didn't do it every day, and that we have this thing called repentance. When we turn to ourselves, we have to say, we turn to ourselves, we turn back to God. God's always happy to have us back. He's always happy to be the primary love and the lover of our soul and the shepherd of our lives. But I have also seen my friends who have reinterpreted the Word of God and navigated around the clear command of God time after time after time. It started with one. It was easy. It was rationalized. They helped God out. It's not pretty, y'all. And we all do this. I do this. We all have to repent. But it's just not going to work out over time. You see, when we func- we functionally become the, more, the most important thing in our lives, more than God, we are tracking towards something diluted and shallow. Mark it down. When we are the center of our universe, it's as shallow as us. When our will is the final authority in our lives, our lives become more self-made and more hollow. And our future becomes more barren. sometimes tragically so we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and I'll get to the end the Lord laid on him in a moment okay but we're not talking about some bad person that made a series of bad choices we're talking about what confronts you and I daily we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way this is why I am so deeply challenged by Abraham Because he died to himself. And he took his only son, the one and only, the unique, the special, the one he loved, to three days to the top of a mountain to sacrifice him. So first, faith is about a death. And I would ask you the question, what needs to die? Secondly, though, faith is about a resurrection. It's going to get happier. Faith is about a resurrection. Y'all, it's three days to get to Mount Moriah. Can you imagine the thinking the thoughts in Abraham's mind going at donkey speed for three days? Can you imagine the amount of times he just wanted to just say, okay, we're turning around. I I just can't do this. I've got all the reasons why I'm not going to do this. He just kept that donkey. You can just hear those donkey foot hoof prints. Three days, one step closer to a sacrifice. Now, God was bigger than the way Abraham felt. That's a big statement, isn't it? God is bigger than the way we feel. You know, 1 John 3.20, and we know that God is greater than our hearts. What a beautiful verse. 
We're taught in the culture that whatever our hearts want, we're locked in with that. We should never deny it. If we deny it, it's never going to be for real. No, God's greater than our hearts. And the longer Abraham journeys, God is greater than his heart. And the longer Abraham journeys, all we can surmise is that he is coming to a firmer and firmer conclusion that though he doesn't understand, God is going to come through. God's will will glorify God. God's will will be good. He's going to do it. And when they arrive, Abraham says to his servant, and just listen to the faith in this, I'm going to take the boy up there. We will worship. We will sacrifice. Listen to this. And we will return. Meaning, I will cut his throat, I will burn him as a lie, or dead as a burnt offering, and we will both walk back here. Do you understand what Abraham is saying is, I will trust God, and God can raise my son from the dead. How do we know that? We know that from our text. Hebrews 11, 17, 18. He considered, he reasoned, that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, which... Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Meaning, if you know the story, this is kind of a spoiler if you don't, but, you know, he didn't have to kill him and he was given back to Abraham. Abraham's faith, y'all, was reasoned. Enough of all this blind faith. People saying, we have reason, you have faith. Everybody's got reasons for everything. Everything has a reason. Faith has a reason. You don't put your faith in anything without a reason. All of our faith is rooted in a lot of thinking. And to be able to think biblically, thinking God's thoughts after Him according to His Word, this is strong thinking. This is, this is right thinking. Uh, here, here's an example, uh, maybe for your life. Uh, you might ponder the next time you're in a, a difficult choice. You might ponder this. Has God been faithful to me in my life over the course of my life with Him? Have I seen that there is blessing in obedience and faith in God and to go with God? And you know what? I bet you you're going to answer the question, yes. And I even have strong implications from the no's in my life that I said to God that I've learned something from. And one of the great things about having the Scriptures, obviously, is is that we can see what God did in the lives of other people. We can kind of go to school and they're put. You say in the golfing terminology. So Abraham reasoned out his faith. God promised that through Isaac's offspring they would be named. It has to come through Isaac. I want you to sacrifice Isaac, but it has to come through Isaac. Therefore, it will come through Isaac. And then... Does it? I mean, this is the most amazing part. He follows through on his faith. I just got to read this to you as we conclude. I got to read this to you from Genesis 22. You just got to feel it. You just got to see it. Genesis 22:7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, "Abba, Abi is the word Abi. Oh, just killing Abraham. Abi, he says, yes, my son." Abi, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, can you imagine? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
And the two of them went on together. That is faith. And boy, would God provide. Verse 9, And when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built that altar and arranged the wood on it just as God had said. He took a rope and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood, on top of the altar. And then, verse 10, he reached out his hand and he took out his knife in order to slay his son. He raises his knife. And I mean, you know, you know how um, whether it's a fumble or an a, a, a incomplete pass, whether the hand's going forward or not? That's kind of what this is like. Don't! Don't harm the boy! That's what it's like. The Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, here I am, he replied. (laughs) Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only, your unique, special son. Abraham looked up, verse 13, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place that he was, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And it's all pictured right here in this table before us. Because this event on the top of that mountain pictures another son that would be sacrificed on Moriah and would be raised from the dead to reign. I'm talking about Jesus. Do you know? Do you know where God said, you know, God said, I want you to go to Moriah to the hill that I will tell you about? Do you know where that exact place was? You ready for this? This is like one of those aha moments in Scripture. That exact spot was the exact spot later that the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem was built on that spot where thousands upon thousands of lambs were slain and sacrificed as a burnt offering. And I'm going to tell you something right there. On that hill, on Mount Moriah, within eyesight of that hill is another hill where God, who so loved this world, took His only Son and prepared the sacrifice. And I tell you the difference between what happened on that hill called Calvary or Golgotha and what happened in Genesis 22. There was nobody there to say, don't harm Him. No, the knife was plunged right into God's only Son. Maybe we should say the nails were were driven right into God's only Son. No, nobody heard don't harm Him. What they heard was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? That's what they heard from that hill. 
from me. From me. God will provide a lamb. And those words echoed down through those centuries to that very place. And God's only begotten Son is the lamb that God has provided for you and for me. And he is raised to life and has all power and authority. Has the ability to give life. Real life. Because he has paid the price. He has raised to be the son with power. So, let's move to this table. To remember that hill called Calvary. Let's move to this table not just to remember but to commune with the risen Christ who did everything necessary for us to know him. And let me just read one verse that you've already said out loud as we move there. You ready? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Come. Come, let us keep the feast. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We're amazed. We're amazed at Abraham. We're amazed that faith is a death. And, Lord, there are things that are in first place in our hearts, and typically that means we're in first place in our hearts. Oh, Lord, would you deliver us from us? Would you, in your mercy, help us to see these things and would you give us a hunger for your love that is better than life and to love you would you restore our first love O oh God if you've never put your trust in what Christ has done and put your trust in him and you'd like to you see that he did it and you can't do it he did it for you just pray Lord I see it I've never seen it before I want to put my trust now in, in Christ, what you have done for me on the cross. Thank you that through your sacrifice and through faith in you, trusting in that and in you, you have forgiven me of all my sins. And thank you that even now you are my living Lord. And, O oh Lord, as we move to this table, we pray that it would be a time of wonder and a time of celebration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.